college is a significant time when people are making a lot of uh, life decisions. They're outside the family nest for the first time for many of them, and they're trying to figure out whether what they've uh, been taught as a child is really true and personalizing it. And it is a strategic opportunity to, uh, to reach some of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, the Kirchhoffs have been used of God for decades in this uh, Inland Valley at the Cal Poly campus, and we're really thankful to God uh, for them. Isaac, you probably need to give me a little help this morning. Uh, Normally, I can talk over a P-51 Mustang, but I'm not sure I can this morning, so um, if you'd help me out a little, I'd appreciate it. Uh, You can open your Bibles up to uh, Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13, we're back into the Gospel of Matthew. We've been absent from it for a while uh, because of the holidays, but uh, we are back and uh, continuing our verse-by-verse exposition of uh, this wonderful, wonderful gospel. And as we uh, are turning there and and, uh, thinking about Matthew's gospel, perhaps a little bit of a review would be in order. I know if you're like I am, uh, it is difficult to uh, hold everything in your head. There's just so much that comes at us. Day in and day out, we live in the information overload age. And so uh, to take a little bit of time and just to review this gospel and get our feet back solidly planted in it uh, before we begin to look at it in, uh, in detail, I think would be helpful. So just by way of a little bit of a review, just, um, you know, Matthew has, a, has an intended purpose in writing this book. And uh, his purpose is to answer the question that if Jesus is the Messiah then what happened? How come the Jewish nation did not receive her king? And he goes about uh, that process, and uh, first by demonstrating the reality that Jesus is the king. And he presents in Matthew's gospel, chapters 5 through 7, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, which is uh, the longest and most detailed of, of Jesus' preaching ministry that we find in the gospels. And there Jesus uh, compares uh, the kingdom that he has come to bring with the prevailing uh, religious system of the nation of Israel at that time. And as you read through that Sermon on the Mount, you need to understand it as uh, a group of Pharisees standing off to the side and Jesus continually comparing, you heard that it's been said, but I say to you. And he makes known to them really an exposition of the Mosaic law as it might rightly be understood. Matthew then follows that with several chapters of miracles. And he, he uh, is not chronological in the presentation of those miracles. He is selective. And so he reaches um, back in time and forward in time of the three and a half year public ministry of Jesus to accumulate a series of miracles, nine of them there, uh, to uh, demonstrate uh, Jesus is indeed the, the long-promised king, the Messiah. And those miracles that he selects from Jesus' public ministry are rooted in the Old Testament prophecies of what the kingdom would be like. And so they demonstrate the authority of the king over the elements of nature and sin in the demon world. From that point forward, Matthew, you would think that the nation would be just, uh, you know, can't wait uh, to receive this kingdom. But Matthew shows us that the nation actually Uh, turns away and begins to turn away. And beginning in chapter 10 of Matthew's gospel, he 
accumulates for us some of those reactions of the people who have heard the teaching, seen the miracles, and yet still refuse to embrace the king. That growing hostility reaches a boiling point in chapter 12. There, the Pharisees, uh, for the first time chronologically, uh, voice uh, the undercurrent, and that is that they attribute the work of the Spirit of God in the life of Jesus, not to the, not to the Holy Spirit, but to uh, Satan himself. That is their answer for the miracles. They cannot dispute them. They instead attribute the power behind them to Satan. That is what is commonly called the unforgivable sin, or the unpardonable sin Uh, That public breach with the leadership of the nation creates a crisis point in which Jesus calls for people to decide. Are you with me or are you with them? And uh, he pronounces woes upon the cities of the northern uh, region around the Sea of Galilee who have heard his teaching and seen the majority of his miracles and yet have refused to believe. From that point forward, Jesus begins a new style of teaching, and that is what we call parables, and that is beginning here in chapter 13 where Matthew has uh, accumulated some for us here. These parables are a new way to teach, and they they are intended to accomplish a couple of different purposes. Now, what do they concern? What are, what are the parables about? And uh, we see in uh, verse 11 of Matthew 13 that the, the content of these parables concern the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. You can see it there in the, minist- in the middle of the verse, the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. They do not declare, as some would say, a mystery kingdom. And we need to make sure that we acknowledge that difference. They are not declare a new kingdom, a mystery kingdom. They instead declare the mysteries of the kingdom. And mystery, uh, is a, is in the scriptures, and in the Testament, speaks about a truth that was previously unknown or un. Uh, unseen by the people of God that has now in a certain place and and point in time has been revealed to us. And that's exactly what is happening here. Coming off of the the unpardonable sin, the the deep-seated unbelief in the face of all the overwhelming evidence, Jesus begins to to reveal these mysteries about the kingdom of God. Mysteries that if you look over to verse 35, uh, Jesus, or Matthew rather, uh, reflecting on this, says that mysteries that have been hidden since the foundation of the world. That means they were there all along. It's just they had not yet come to light. They had not yet been revealed could not be revealed until Jesus had made the kingdom offer to the nation and that the nation, through its leadership, had refused that kingdom offer. Now was the time for these mysteries mysteries to begin to be revealed. Now, what is the truth 
that is revealed in these mysteries? That's an important question. What is the truth that the parables are designed to communicate? And, and simply put, it is the nature of the kingdom between the advents of the king. It is the, it is the, uh, the nature of that kingdom from the first coming to the second coming of Christ. And it covers that period of time. So what the parables uh, do not do is they do not unsay what the Old Testament says about the kingdom of God. And that's important to remember. All that has previously been revealed through the prophets about the coming kingdom of God has not been unsaid by Jesus at this point. And so we need to remember that all of that uh, information is uh, being pulled forward. In fact, in verse 52 of Matthew chapter 13... Uh, and we'll get to this again in, a, I don't know, a couple of weeks. But uh, it talks about uh, the head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and old. The old that he brings out of his treasure is that previous uh, revelation of the kingdom of God given in the Old Testament. The new are these things that Jesus has now revealed to him or to them. So the, uh, the parables, as I say, they, they, uh, they cover that uh, period of time uh, of the, from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ, that kingdom period. Now, what that means is that they are, they are not written specifically to describe the church age, and we need to remember that. Okay? They are not written to describe specifically the church age because the church does not begin at the first advent of Christ uh, and, it, and it, uh, it begins after uh, the first advent of Christ and the church is removed before the return of Christ. So this kingdom period uh, precedes the coming of the church and, and follows the, the, uh, the removal of the church. But the two run parallel for a considerable period of time. And what that means then is, is that as we look at these parables, there is truth we can learn about the present age in which we live by application, but it is not, they are not written to specifically describe this age, if that's helpful to you. We, as, as uh, those who have placed our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, have become part of the family of God, part of the church, part of his body. Paul tells us in first, uh, excuse me, in Colossians chapter one and in verse thirteen that then qualifies us as citizens of this kingdom. So we will uh, partake of the coming kingdom by virtue of our membership in the Church of Jesus Christ. So hopefully, a little bit of that background just kind of gets you gets you thinking here. So why did Jesus tell, or why did Jesus speak in parable? Why did he do that? And that really kind of cuts to the heart of the issue here. And, and it's, a, it's an important question. In fact, it's the very question that was on the, the minds of the disciples. And you can see it in verse 10 of chapter 13. They asked Jesus that. They say, why do you speak to them in parables? And we're glad they voiced that question because Jesus answers it for us. And, and that uh, enables us to, to rightly understand these parables. And what Jesus says to them in, in response is that um, he speaks in these parables because he's addressing several groups of people simultaneously. Uh, 
and conveying different content to those two groups of people. To them, in verse 11, the parables uh, let them in on the mysteries of the kingdom. Yet at the same time, the parables conceal from other groups of people information that uh, Jesus no longer wants them to have. And he want, doesn't want them to have it, I think, for a couple of reasons. One is that it, it would instigate the religious authorities in such a way that could bring about his premature death. And so he, it's not time for him to die yet. And so he needs to speak in a careful sort of way so that he keeps the lid on this thing and, and he doesn't get himself arrested too quickly. Beyond that, it's a, it's a form of mercy, really, and grace because by concealing additional truth from, a certain, from the segment of the nation that is refusing him, he uh, doesn't escalate the judgment that they would be uh, culpable for by additional information, additional revelation that they refuse. So he's got these twin purposes going. Because his disciples, verse 12, have received what he has already given, they therefore are, are, are um, enabled to receive additional revelation. And Jesus will privately explain some of these parables to them and enable them to kind of get in on the mystery. Uh, they're going to see, actually, Matthew uh, records for us, verses 16 and 17, they're going to, uh, to see and to hear what the prophets of old longed to see and hear. And that is they are, going, they are in the presence of the Messiah. And they're, they're, they, before their eyes, see the king. They hear the king. But for the others, because they have refused, because they have willfully attributed to Satan, the power of the Spirit of God in the life of the Messiah, he is going to respond to them judicially. That is, that there is going to be a, a removal of what little light they had, and they are going to be confirmed in their condemnation, which is coming upon them. You see that in, uh, in really beginning in verse 12, but, but verse 13 is good. It says, Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy Isaiah is being fulfilled. And then he quotes Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10, which is the prophecy of judicial judgment upon the nation. Now, Matthew himself uh, follows this up over in verses 34, 35, the same chapter, and uh, sees an additional fulfillment, the, the Isaiah 6, 9, and 10 fulfillment Jesus gives. Matthew sees an additional fulfillment in the use of the, of the ministry of parables, verses 34, 35, where he says, All these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he did not speak to them without a parable. Why? This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. Matthew here is reaching back, uh, interestingly, into Psalm 78. Psalm 78, which is a psalm written by uh, Asaph, who uh, we are told in, in 2 Chronicles 29 and verse 30 that Asaph was a prophet. And uh, this Psalm 78 recounts the history of Israel's rebellious spirit 
in spite of the grace of God upon them. And so Matthew sees in the, in the response of the nation to Jesus, he sees a similar spirit and attitude in the heart of his countrymen. And that is in spite of Jesus' ministry and message, a very gracious ministry, a very gracious message to the nation, they instead turn and reject him in rebelliousness, this generation of Israelites. And so for Matthew, that is a, that is a fulfillment uh, of the same spirit that Asaph saw in his own generation. So this is uh, just kind of setting boundaries for us, a little bit of, little bit of help. Beyond that, let's take a look at a little bit of, of, of background before we look. Uh, did I say this yet, that we're, we're looking at uh, verses? I probably didn't say it. We're looking at verses uh, 31 through 33. So we will get there, believe me. But uh, just a you know, further little more background to maybe help us out here. There are two uh, parables that, that Matthew recounts for us in the beginning part of chapter 13. They're, they're lengthy, and he provides the interpretation for us. And they are the, the parable of the soils and the parable of the tares. And we took the time to look carefully at them. And they are parables that speak about the reception and opposition to the message of the kingdom that the king and his, and his uh, disciples uh, have brought and will bring. Now Matthew uh, turns, uh, or actually Jesus turns, to, to, and Matthew records for us uh, a couple of, of additional parables here beginning in verse 31. These two parables, the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven, and that's what we're going to look at, uh, concern the growth of this kingdom. So the soils and the tares concern the reception and opposition to the kingdom. You remember in the soils, there were four kinds of soils, right? And, and only one received the word with a good heart. And the parable of the tares, the seed was sown, and then the enemy, Satan himself, sowed false uh, converts, uh, false believers among. So there was that active opposition. Here now... Uh, Jesus is going to tell two more parables, and these parables concern the growth of this kingdom. Now, historically, these two parables have have suffered uh, from two opposing and equally erroneous interpretations that I want to uh, quickly deal with and dismiss right up front. Uh, No doubt that many of you have heard one or the other of these Maybe you've even held to one or the other of these, and uh, that's okay. But when we're done uh, this morning, hopefully uh, you won't do that anymore. So we want, to, we want to deal with these errors of interpretation of the mustard seed and the leaven parable. And both of these errors stem from, a, from a, uh, an identical beginning point. And that identical beginning point, wrong beginning point, is to identify the kingdom of heaven with what is called Christendom. Okay, Christendom. Now you may be familiar with that word, that may be a new word to you, but, but Christendom essentially speaks about all those people who proclaim some sort of allegiance to the Christian religion. So uh, you, you will read in various places about you know, two billion Christians in the world or whatever the number is. That would speak about what we would call Christendom. 
That is, anyone who has any sort of attachment to, to the Christian religion. They are not followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are not saved. They are not born again. And the sort of terminology that you and I are comfortable with and, and understand the scriptures to teach. So, the erroneous starting point of the two uh, uh, incorrect interpretations of the mustard seed and leaven parable begin with that identification of the kingdom of heaven here with uh, what's called Christendom. Now, the first uh, bad interpretation is, uh, is what I'm calling the triumphal view. The triumphal view. And, and uh, in the triumphal view, it sees the growth of the mustard seed and the, and the leavening of the flour as representing the, the eventual conversion of the world to the Christian faith. Okay? That is the interpretation they would, they would take from this. And um, what they would say is that eventually the entire world will become converted to the Christian faith. And it's expressed in various uh, forms and has been historically understood, actually, from the 3rd century. Uh, the uh, great church father Augustine, uh, who had a little bit of a fondness for uh, allegorical interpretation, he uh, explained the uh, parable of the leaven this way. He says the, the uh, three measures of flour, the three pecks of flour, represent the whole human race uh, embodied in Noah's three sons. That was sort of clever exegesis, right? There's three measures of flour. Noah has three sons. The human race comes from those three sons. And so, presto, it makes great preaching. But it's, um, it's not true. Now, in our day, this, uh, this viewpoint, I think, probably commonly associated with what's called post-millennialism. Post-millennialism, which is the understanding that Jesus will return to, uh, to bring in the eternal state post-millennium, that is, after the millennium period. And uh, they would, uh, those that hold to a post-millennial point of view would, would, would uh, speak about it this way. They would say that Christ will return once the gospel has penetrated all aspects of society. That meaning that it has affected business life, social customs, morals, political life, art, music, poetry, and so forth. That is a post-millennial point of view. It's the idea that we need to um, uh, take over the culture for Christ and spread the Christian faith from one end of the globe to the other. And when we've been successful in that, uh, Jesus will return. Uh, Onward, Christian soldiers is a good post-millennial hymn that we won't sing uh, here because it's not true. Okay, It's a good hymn, but it's not true. So we don't sing it. So that is uh, what we call the triumphal view. The other uh, opposite error is uh, what I call the pessimistic view. So you have the triumphal view, and now you have the pessimistic view. And the pessimistic view um, tries to make a distinction between uh, the kingdom of heaven and uh, what is referred to in the other Gospels uh, as the kingdom of God. So it seeks to to create a, a... a difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. The uh, kingdom of heaven is, uh, is thought to be Christendom, which we just talked about. And the kingdom of God is then said to be the, the true believing church that exists as a subset within Christendom, within the kingdom of heaven. 
Those who take this kind of interpretive viewpoint see the birds of the air that are mentioned there in verse 32 of the mustard seed and the leaven of verse 34 as a reference to apostasy and unbelief that will be infiltrating the organized church. And uh, there's something appealing about this, to be sure, because the Bible talks in other places that as, uh, as we, you know, the end times, the last days, that apostasy will grow, that unbelief will grow. And, and the Bible teaches that in many different places. It just doesn't teach it here. And, but uh, those who, who uh, have this uh, uh, approach to it, what they say is that the leaven is communicating to us the, the growing apostasy, the growing unbelief. The birds of the air or the birds are considered to be, to be uh, uh, symbols of evil that lodge themselves within the, the organized church. And while all the while the, the kingdom of God in that teaching remains pure and undefiled. And uh, this, this view is typically associated with what we call classic dispensationalism. Classic dispensationalism. You can, if you've never heard that before, you can mark it down somewhere, and uh, you'll be just that much smarter when you leave. Okay. So we have postmillennialism, we have classic dispensationalism, and those are two basic approaches to these parables. Now, the problem with the classic dispensational approach, and we need to just deal with that quickly, is that uh, the gospels don't uh, hold up under examination to the differentiation that they're trying to make. That is that the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are two separate things. And the reason it doesn't hold up is because they're used interchangeably. And in fact, in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 4 and verse 30, which is uh, a recounting, Mark's recounting of the parable of the mustard seed. So uh, we're right in the same place. Uh, there, uh, Mark uses the terminology, the kingdom of God. And uh, so you've got the same parable, Matthew recording the kingdom of heaven, Mark recording the kingdom of God. Uh, I would suggest to you Jesus used both terms himself interchangeably. And so they are interchangeable expressions. So it is not valid to assume one means one thing and one means another when they are used interchangeably to refer to the same reality. Beyond that, Jesus says in John's Gospel that no one enters the kingdom of God uh, without being born from above, right? So there, is, there are no unbelievers that enter the kingdom of God. So there cannot be unbelief in the kingdom of God. And if the kingdom of God equals the kingdom of heaven, there cannot be um, this notion of a, a, a growing, prevailing wickedness within God's kingdom. I hope that's helpful. Because I said all that to say this. Those are the ways we don't want to do it. And maybe you've heard some of those. Maybe, you know, maybe you even kind of think that's the way it is. I, I hope to persuade you otherwise. What I want to do now is, um, having sort of set out these historical misinterpretations, I, I want to arrive at what I think is the true interpretation of the parable here without importing into it uh, ideas, some ideas that are, that are even true, that come from an outside context. And I want to let the parable speak for itself. There is sufficient evidence uh, uh, explanation built into the parable for us to be able to understand what Jesus was saying. Jesus did not explain these parables to his disciples. He explained the soils. He explained the tares. He does not explain these two. They could understand them. We can understand them too if we will just let the words 
say what they say. So, something that you want to just have in your mind as, as we uh, delve into it, and we're close now, we're getting real close, okay? Um, is just to, just to sort of re- think about this. Jesus and, and his band of followers were not important people. They were not prominent people. They were not powerful people. They were unschooled people. That means they didn't go to any of, any of the right academic institutions. No degrees. They were working class people. They came from, a, from an area of the, of the nation, Galilee, which was a despised area. So the wrong, the wrong side of the tracks, if you like it that way. The, the, uh, the, no social significance, no prestige, no power, no schooling, nothing. Nothing to commend them in any way. What hope would this little group of nobodies have against all the religious, social, and political might of both the Roman government and the religious leadership of their own nation. Just think about that. They are, are to be given the task of heralds of the kingdom. And yet there is nothing about them to commend them in any way. Nothing to cause anyone to stop and say, wow, I'd like to hear more about that. You're so smart. Nothing. Furthermore, once the, the, the powers to be got around to, to uh, seeking to, to stamp them out, and they would, what hope would they have? How could they stand? How could, how could this little messianic community, this, this little enterprise, ever get off the ground? When the weight of Rome... And the power of of Israel and its religious leadership was completely opposed to them. What hope would they have? That is the context into which Jesus speaks these two parables of growth. Parables of kingdom growth. And Jesus addresses these these questions and and the process. And in in doing so... um, He gives us two important reminders. Two important reminders regarding kingdom growth. So that we will be encouraged when it seems like nothing is happening here at Foothill. I've heard that from a few people. There's nothing going on at Foothill. Oh no, there's lots going on. Sometimes it's it's not obvious to the eyes. But there's lots going on. And I think these parables can can help us to to refocus and and get a view of that. So I want to deal uh, first with uh, the parable of the mustard seed. And and this parable deals with the extent of the kingdom growth. The extent, E-X-T-E-N-T, of the kingdom growth. And the, uh, the reminder here is that the growth of the kingdom will be disproportional. Okay, that's the key word, disproportional. Verses 31 and 32. 
he presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants. It becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. The mustard seed, the black mustard seed, technically, is common to that area. It is a, it is a source of uh, food. It is a, a source of condiments. It's a source of medicine. There's a little picture there for you. I'll try to give you just sort of an idea. It is small. It is uh, actually proverbial in its size. For something that is small. It became a common proverb of something small as a mustard seed. As a way to speak about something tiny. Something insignificant. It is not the smallest seed in existence. The orchard seed is smaller. But but in that context. In that place. Familiar to that people. The black mustard seed is the smallest of the garden seeds. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that this smallest of seeds when planted in the ground, grows into a, into a tree-like bush some 10 to 12 feet in height. Okay? The smallest of seeds grows into the largest of garden plants, a plant that is, that is uh, tree-like in its dimensions. This is something that would be well-known to the people of the day. This is sort of one of those things when you say it, the people of that day would go, well, duh. We all know that. Okay? We all know about mustard seeds and we know what they do. So Jesus is taking what is common to them, what, they, what is a part of their experience, and he is making a comparison from what they know to something they don't know. And the comparison he's making here is between the mustard seed and the, and the kingdom, right? You see it in verse 31. The kingdom of heaven is like... A mustard seed. So, so we need to ask ourselves, what is it about the kingdom of God that is like a mustard seed? There is something in the life cycle of the mustard seed that illustrates a truth about the kingdom. And what is it? What is the point of comparison? And I think the point is obvious here. And the point of it is that that which starts out small and insignificant uh, eventually grows to something massive. It is, a, it is a point of comparison for the mustard seed between its beginning and its end. Its beginning and its end. That which is teeny becomes that which is large. The point of comparison, the kingdom, begins teeny and will become large. Okay? The kingdom starts out very small. It will eventuate to be very, very large. Now, as I said earlier, the church is not the kingdom but the church period runs in the, in the same tracks as the kingdom. And we certainly know the church began small, did it not? It starts out with 11 you know, disciples, and, and then uh, by Pentecost uh, we see 120, and then uh, at Pentecost there's 3,000 added, and the church begins to grow. And, and by the time you're through the book of Acts, the church has grown to, the, to basically dominate the, the uh, landscape around the Mediterranean. So there is a, a growth from a very small beginning and that's what jesus is saying that's all he's telling you 
is the kingdom will start small and insignificant, but it will grow. Now, that is a tremendous encouragement to if you're on the small side, right? You're at the beginning place. This is an incredible encouragement that what God does in a seed, he will do with his kingdom. The same power that makes the seed become the tree will make the kingdom grow large. Okay? If you believe one, you should have no trouble believing the other. Now, what about the birds? What do we do with the birds? Well, a couple possibilities, I guess. One, uh, one is to see the birds as, as merely illustrative of the size of the eventual tree. That is, that it, the mustard seed grows so big that birds can actually, you know, nest within its branches, rest in it. Okay? It may be there purely as sort of the window dressing to uh, illustrate the size of the tree. Or it's possible, and I'm kind, of, I'm kind of moving this direction, it's possible to see this as an allusion to a couple of Old Testament uh, statements in Daniel chapter 4 and verse 12, Ezekiel chapter 31, verse 6. There's a, a similar expression used there, and it speaks there in uh, Daniel and Ezekiel about the size and scope of the Babylonian and Assyrian kingdoms. Kingdoms that were so large, they encumbered many, many people groups of the known Mediterranean world. So perhaps Jesus is, and, and if you have the, the NASB where they set it out there as um, um, fulfillment of, uh, of this Old Testament, you'll probably see it in your marginal notes, the, uh, the references, then uh, Jesus is, is um, perhaps illustrating that, that Messiah's eventual kingdom, not only being large, will also encompass many, many different people groups. They'd find their place within it. I kind of like that myself. You know, I go to Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, where they're told to go and make disciples of all the, notice the word, nation, ethnos, all the people groups. Right? So the, this, uh, this work that they've been given to do encompasses the world. And then, uh, and then I think about Revelation chapter 5 and verses 9 and 10, and this one, uh, even more so for me, it says uh, there in the, in the throne room of God, it says uh, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain, talking about Jesus, and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and, and they will reign upon the earth. So I, I kind of like that idea that the, the birds there are illustrating for us the reality that when this kingdom grows, that it will actually encompass the peoples of, of, the, of the earth, which we know to be true. So the first parable deals with the extent of kingdom growth. That takes us to the, to the second parable, and uh, that deals with the power behind the growth. First is the extent of the growth. The next is the power behind the growth. And the, and, uh, the reminder here is that the growth of the kingdom will be irresistible. That's the idea. Okay? One is that it's disproportional. The other is that it's irresistible. In verse 33, spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until all was leavened. All right, you're the disciples. You're hearing these parables. Jesus has just taught you that the, the kingdom is going to grow to this, this uh, incredible extent. And you're thinking to yourself, 
How? Right? Isn't that an obvious question? Okay, Jesus, we believe you. It will grow, but, but how will it grow? How will it grow big like that? By what means will this growth be brought about? Now, when you think about kingdoms, uh, it's, it's pretty natural to think about armies. That's how kingdoms, at least the kingdoms of the world, are brought about, right? You want to create a kingdom? You need an army. And so it's a very natural thing for them to be thinking that way. Is there going to be some kind of an army? Hey, how cool. Like Jesus at the leadership of the army. And now we don't need supply wagons because if, if we get hungry, he just, you know, turns uh, a little boy's lunch into enough to feed us all. And if anybody gets wounded, you know, he can heal them immediately. And if you happen to get killed, he'll just raise the dead. So this is, a, this is going to be a dynamite kind of army, right? I'll sign up for that. Armies, that's what people think about. That's what they thought about. The only problem is that in uh, Jesus says in John chapter 18 and verse 36, he says, my kingdom is not of this world, meaning my kingdom does not come in the same way that worldly kingdoms come. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. It does not originate in this realm. So, nice try, but forget the armies. Okay? So how, what power is going to bring about this growth? It's not going to be armies. What about political organization? If we could just get organized, right? Them chickens is organized. If we could bring that to pass, then, then we could accomplish great things. That's how human beings think. So we begin to organize ourselves in order to accomplish great things. Or uh, how about a marketing campaign? That's probably a little more of a 20th century approach. But if we can just get the right marketing campaign, you know, the right slogan, you get the right videos, you give away the right gifts and spiffs, and, and uh, this thing can really pick up and run. Problem is that, that uh, the kingdom doesn't advance by any of those things. And nor, by the way, does the church of Jesus Christ. Whenever the church of Jesus Christ has relied upon social or political power to accomplish its mission, it has found itself to be the most corrupt. The most corrupt. Okay, so it's not by armies. It's not by political organization. It's not by marketing campaigns. That is not how the kingdom will grow, will advance. Instead, Jesus communicates something here in verse 33, this time not drawn from the realm of agriculture, but but drawn from the domestic realm. The everyday activity of making bread. Something that he had no doubt seen his mother and sisters do over and over and over again. This is a very, very common thing. This is another one of those, you know, I should have had a V8 kind of moments, right? Bread making. Everybody knows about that in those days. In our days, hardly anybody knows about that. But for them, it was very, very common. And it's a simple process, at least as been explained to me. And uh, in those days, it was simply this. It was flour. They would grind the wheat and make flour between two stones. They'd add a little bit of water, and then they would add a, a piece of dough left over from the prior day's bread. And that dough contained the leaven, and that provided the leavening agent for the next batch of dough. And uh, I guess it's, it's sort of like maybe what we would call, I think it's friendship bread, isn't that what it is? 
where people pass around this uh, stuff and you can continue to make bread from it. You need the leavening agent. And leaven is a microorganism that uh, when it comes in contact with, with flour and water and, and the warmth and so forth, it breaks down the, some of the starch in the flour. It creates a simple sugars. It consumes then the simple sugars. And as a byproduct, it gives off carbon dioxide, gas, and alcohol. The carbon dioxide gas permeates the mixture and, um, and provides a puffiness or a lightness to it. If the bacteria, if the microorganism, the leaven, it's not bacteria, doesn't, doesn't uh, consume all the sugar, then the bread is slightly sweet. When it's baked, the alcohol in the dough is boiled off. Okay, that's, that's leavened bread making. Now, Jesus is going to make a comparison here. See it again, verse 33. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is, look at the word, it's like leaven, which... It's like leaven which. What I mean by that is it's like the activity of leaven. The kingdom of heaven is like the activity of leaven. It's it's not so much that it's the leaven itself. It's what the leaven does. What the leaven does. The outstanding feature of leaven is that it is silent. It is invisible. And it is irresistible. Silent, invisible, and irresistible until it permeates the entire batch of dough. And in this case, by the way, that's a big batch of dough. Three measures of flour. Commentators are of a different opinion of how much flour we're talking about. One thinks it could be as much as 100 pounds. Some see it as less than that. It's a very large amount of flour, needless to say. Why three measures of flour? I'm not as creative as Augustine, so I would just tell you that it's three measures of flour because uh, that illustrates that the leaven's power is sufficient to overcome or to do its work upon a very large amount of flour. It's a very powerful agent. It can overcome and it can transform a very large amount of flour. Jesus is answering here for us the the question of how. How does the mustard seed that begins so small become so big? Answer, by the silent, invisible, and irresistible process of growth. In a world that is hostile, in a world that is set up in opposition to to the work of Messiah's kingdom, it will grow by this invisible process. And I think it's a fair thing to say. It's a spiritual process, right? It is silent, it is invisible, and it is irresistible. In fact, this principle is is taught uh, throughout the Old Testament, but but certainly one that stands out for me, I think, is uh, Zechariah's prophecy in Zechariah chapter four and verse six, where where the returning uh, those returning from the Babylonian captivity are very discouraged in their attempt to rebuild the temple, and um, and so Zechariah speaks this word to them. He says, "This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, uh, who is the political guy who's to rebuild the temple here, and it says that in the rebuilding of the temple, it's not by might." Nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of armies, the Lord of hosts. It is by my spirit that this will be accomplished. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is talking about. 
Now, maybe one other point uh, worth talking about. In uh, verse 33, it says the woman took and hid the leaven in the three measures or three pecks of flour. Uh, the, the word hid is the idea of enclosed. So it was enclosed in the, the flour, in the dough. And uh, if you have watched bread making, there's a process called kneading, right? Where you put it in and you don't just let it puff up, but when it puffs up, you punch it down. You fold it in on itself. And uh, that process uh, helps to distribute the leaven throughout all of the dough. And um, you can do with this what you like, but uh, I think the kneading process uh, is uh, akin to the, to the process of persecution that comes upon the people of God. There is a sort of a punching down. There's a folding in on itself uh, that, that contributes to the, to the spread. I think about uh, Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, for example, where uh, there is the death of C- Stephen, and it says Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. This is some time after that Jesus has said to them, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth, right? But the problem was life was very happy in Jerusalem, so nobody was getting outside of Jerusalem. So it was time for a little punching down, a little kneading, a little folding in one of itself. And the persecution comes, and it says on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles, okay? So you can do with it what you like, but the leavening process, uh, I think, kind of works well with the, the idea of the, of the opposition that comes is um, by the sovereign power of God enlisted in the process of empowering the growth of that kingdom. Okay, I'm going to finish this on time, and uh, I'm going to do that with just a few lessons, okay? So is there a few lessons we can take away from this? Well, I think there are. Here they are. They're coming at you quick. Number one lesson is God has, uh, has strange methods for accomplishing his purposes. Wouldn't you agree? Right? If you and I were doing this thing, this is not the way we would do it. And the reason I know that's true is how often we find ourselves chafing under the way God does things. Okay? So God has, a, has a strange ways about accomplishing his purposes. And one of those strange ways is he, is he, uh, he likes to start small. He likes things to start small before they grow big. Beyond that, uh, small beginnings don't necessarily preclude large results. Just because something's small doesn't mean that someday it won't grow big. And I can illustrate that to you perhaps with the growth of the church in China. Think about that. When the communists took over in 1949, the missionaries were were uh, banished from the country. The church was small and fledgling. And uh, now, uh, depending on different estimates, I've heard as high as 80 million uh, believers. I don't know if it's that high, but there's a massive, been a massive, massive growth of the church within China. And I think it illustrates God's principles of starting small and growing big. So that's a lesson for us to just remember, okay? Because we, we tend to like the idea of let's start big and get bigger, right? God likes to start small. Second lesson, I think, is, is this, that there is an unseen power behind kingdom growth. There's an unseen power, and just a few verses for you to think about. Uh, John chapter 3, verse 8, Jesus says, The wind blows where it wishes, you hear the sound of it, you do not know where it comes from, where it is going, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. 
spirits, right? The spirit moves like the wind, okay? It's, it's un, it's, you see its results, but you don't see it. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. The power of the growth comes from the Spirit of God. And he is invisible. He is silent. He is irresistible. The mechanism that he utilizes, Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 22, where he says that the Jews ask for signs. Okay, They want more miracles. The Greeks search for wisdom. They want erudite arguments and PhDs. And uh, we give them Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block. To the Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Okay? We give them the preaching of the gospel and this irresistible growth occurs. And maybe a third. We're kind of in a new year. Probably good to tuck this one away. Like leaven moving through the dough, the kingdom is adding new citizens relentlessly, irresistibly, and at times imperceptibly. All over the globe. All over the globe. God is doing things. Sometimes we get to see it with our own eyes. Many times we don't. But God is still at work. So we preach and we pray and we rely in faith upon what Jesus said will happen. And we leave everything else up to him. And that's probably a good a good way to just sort of enter into the new year. Huh? Let's preach the word here and in a million different venues we find ourselves. Let's pray for the Spirit to do his work. Let's trust that Christ is building his kingdom at the moment visible to us through the church. It is irresistible, it is relentless, it is silent. And by the time Christ returns, that kingdom will grow big. Let's pray. Father, thank you for letting us in on these mysteries. Thank you for moving in Matthew's heart to record these things for us. And thank you for the long line of those that have gone before us to preserve the scriptures and to translate them into the English language. Thank you that we have our own copy of the word of God available to us to read and meditate upon and, and to come to a greater understanding of you, who you are and what you're doing. And Father, we confess that our faith is uh, often is fragile and, and can uh, falter, and particularly in the face of adversity. Father, we confess that sometimes we, we ask ourselves, if not out loud, certainly in our own mind, what are you doing, Lord? as if we would know better. Forgive us our impertinence. Help us to trust and to believe that you are at work accomplishing your purposes. And that our own little corner of the vineyard where you have us, help us to be found faithful, preaching and praying, 
trusting the results to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Go in peace, uh, beloved. May God be with you this week.